think many people, when they first begin to read the Bible, are surprised. There are a number of things that are surprising about it, but I think one of the things that surprises most people is the rawness of what they see. For all across the pages of Scripture, we see God's people fail, sin, intentionally rebel, make disastrous choices. And this morning, in a moment, in our passage, we'll see one of those instances where one of the leaders of the church has a tremendous failure. And if you think about it, it's really quite intriguing that this failure is in the Bible at all. They wonder, why is it there? For this disciple, Peter, by the time this gospel is being written, years, just a few years after Jesus' death and resurrection, was the leader of the church. So it wouldn't have been surprising, as those who wrote down the gospel accounts did so, that they might have chosen to overlook this massive failure of this one who is a leader in the church. But in fact, that's not what we happens. It, it's in all four gospel accounts and actually in great detail. In such great detail that it would only make sense that Peter himself must have been the source of these details. That he's the one who told of his own failure. And likely he encouraged its inclusion in the Bible. Instances like this actually point to the reliability of the Bible. For if you're going to make up a story by which you wanted to change the world, most people would not think, okay, the leader who's going to follow Jesus, we'd want him to be perfect nearly, really upstanding, not one who fails in such an incredible way as Peter. So you wouldn't include it unless it's true, unless it really happened. And you also wouldn't include it, the key leader failing so much, unless this group, this entire movement of Christians would be people who fail. But that is what they are. All Christians are people who sometimes fail. In fact, often fail in sin and rebellion, and sometimes fail miserably. A massive failure by one key leader is not problematic because our hope is not in that key leader, Peter. But we're, our hope is in the only one who never failed. The only one who is always faithful. That's what we'll see in our passage today. So if you have a Bible, turn to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew 26. Today we'll be in Matthew 26, starting in verse 57. And you can find it in the Bibles near you on page 833. Page 833. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible, open up a, a Bible app, just so you can see the passage in front of you, and you, you can see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from. If you're newer to reading, reading the Bible, the larger number, when you open it up, is the chapter number. So we're in chapter 26. The smaller number is the verse number. We'll start in verse 57. We'll go through chapter 27, verse 10. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. The back of the room, there's a table, there's a sign that says free Bibles, a stack of Bibles. So please grab one of those today, take it with you as our gift to you today. So we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 26, starting in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance. 
as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. Some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. When he went out to the distance, another servant girl saw him. She said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. The chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. This morning in our passage, we'll see this emphasis. Find hope in the faithfulness of Christ, and especially so, when you are unfaithful. Find hope in the faithfulness of Christ, and especially so when you are unfaithful. Look at our passage in three parts. So first we'll see the accusation of guilt. Second, the pain of guilt. And third, the despair of guilt. So the accusation, the pain, and the despair of guilt. So first we see the accusation of guilt in verses 57 through 68. So our passage occurs during these last hours before Jesus was crucified. 
Now, last week we saw Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, and this crowd came with clubs and swords. And they were being led by one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, who had agreed to betray him. So Judas approached Jesus, kissed him on the cheek, the sign that had been agreed upon, and Jesus was seized by this crowd. And after Jesus was seized, we saw in our text last week that all of Jesus' disciples, the other 11, scattered. They all fled. Jesus was left alone with those who had seized him. Our passage today begins as Jesus was led to Caiaphas, the high priest, and to a gathering of the Jewish scribes and elders. We see a brief hint that at least one of Jesus' disciples was nearby, verse 58. We're told that Peter followed at a distance because he wanted to see what was going to happen. So Jesus was brought before this council of Jewish leaders, likely referring to this official group called the Sanhedrin. And we see in verse 59 that they were seeking false testimony to put Jesus to death. So this group was not seeking to carry out justice. They weren't trying to, to hear the facts and then make a decision. They've decided the verdict we want is death. Where can we find justification for that? Where can we find some witnesses who would tell us something that we could use to put Jesus to death? And apparently plenty of false witnesses came. But only certain things would merit the death penalty. And so far, at least, all that they said was not sufficient. And finally, we see in verse 61 that two witnesses came and they said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, this is a complete misquotation and misunderstanding of Jesus. This quote comes from an account that we have in John chapter 2, where people came to Jesus asking for a sign. And this is what he says in John 2, 19, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. So notice Jesus nowhere said he would destroy it, but saying that they could destroy it. As he speaks of being raised in three days, he's not talking about the physical temple, but he's referring to himself. That he would be put to death and he'd be raised on the third day. Jesus, the ultimate, final, true temple. So after this accusation, the high priest responds, look at verse 62. He says, have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But notice Jesus remained silent. In the face of this accusation, Jesus said nothing. He didn't try to correct this misquotation. And typically that's what an innocent person would do, right? If, if you were innocent, being unjustly accused, most of us would argue. See, that's a misquotation. Here's what I said. Or it's a misunderstanding. Here's what I meant. And yet Jesus only remains silent. And in this silence, Jesus fulfills part of what had been prophesied in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 7 says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So here Jesus was silent, and yet in the midst of this completely under control. The leaders are clearly frustrated by this. So verse 63, the high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So God's people had anticipated this one, the Messiah, also translated as the Christ, that he would come and deliver God's people 
So the high priest asks, are you that? And notice Jesus' answer, verse 64. Jesus says to him, you have said so. And the sense of this is that Jesus is saying something like, I am the Messiah, but not in the way that you think of the Messiah. As if he's saying, we're using the same word, but we mean something very different. So it's true, that's what I am. But the high priest and so many of the Jews of that day imagined primarily a political Messiah who would come in that day and throw off the Romans and reestablish the reign of Israel in that place and time. Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, but so much greater, with very different plans and tensions than what they thought the Messiah would bring. But notice that Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes further, verse 64. He says, I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So here Jesus makes allusions to Psalm 110, Daniel chapter 7, this one called the Son of Man coming. And Jesus is saying he is in fact the Son of Man, which is this one sent by God who is truly God. So by this, Jesus is saying he is truly God's eternal king who will be seated with the Father after his death, resurrection, and ascension, and he will reign for eternity. And on this future day, he will be seated in this place of authority, and Jesus will be the ultimate judge. That day, these Jewish leaders are judging Jesus, but there would be a day when Jesus would judge them. So notice that Jesus did not speak to try to correct untrue things about himself. And when he does speak, he actually gives them what they need to put him to death. To claim to be the Messiah in that day was a significant thing, but not worthy of death. There were many who had come saying they were the Messiah. It didn't result in a death penalty. But to claim to be the Son of God, to be the true King, that was blasphemy. That deserved the death penalty. So we see the high priest's response. He understood that Jesus is claiming to be God. Look at verse 65. He tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they, the group, answered, he deserves death. So that's the accusation. Blasphemy. A tremendously serious sin, punishable by death in that day. And for any mere human to claim to be God, that would be blasphemy. That is blasphemy. Unless... You really are God. So Jesus, in fact, was not committing blasphemy that day, for he, in fact, was telling the truth. He is God. God the Son himself. So here we see that Jesus was faithful, true, at peace, and he announced who he was, the very Son of God, the eternal King, knowing that by making that announcement, it would cost him his life. For that statement would give them the justification they needed to put him to death. See also that the men who were responsible for holding Jesus in custody decided to take matters into their own hands. Apparently they'd heard Jesus was supposed to be some kind of a prophet, so they decided to, to mock him in that. So we're told in another gospel account, they blindfolded Jesus. And here we see they repeatedly spit on him. They strike him, they slap him, and they say to him, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? You're blindfolded, tell us, who is it that's punching you now? So rather than respecting, worshiping Jesus, the king, 
They only mock and harass him. Jesus, the faithful one, endured it. He chose not to strike back. Ironically, even as they mock Jesus, they don't realize that they're actually proving he is the prophet. For he had prophesied, he had said this was going to happen in Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 and 19. Here's what Jesus had said previously. See, we're going up to to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, referring to himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So Jesus had predicted ahead of time, he had prophesied this would happen. He predicted ahead of time, he prophesied that Peter would deny him three times. He had prophesied that Judas would also betray him. Jesus calmly, courageously endured their mockery. And friend, as we seek to follow Jesus in this world, there are times when you may have been or will be mocked for following Jesus. Perhaps in your workplace, in your lab, on your campus. Friend, when that happens, remember this. Your King Jesus knows that experience well. He knows what it's like to be mocked. Therefore, who better to understand and to comfort and to help you in the face of mockery? Friend, you see what a marvelous always faithful king we have in Jesus. And friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would join us this morning. And I wonder how you think about Jesus. Many people want a Jesus who's really a, a moral example, a teacher of ethics, a profound person in history perhaps, but not God. So many say, give me Jesus, but I don't believe he's God. But friend, the challenge is Jesus doesn't give us that option because Jesus himself claims to be God. We see that in our text today, right? That these high priests become angry and they're going to have Jesus put to death because of this claim. Clearly the high priest understands what Jesus just said to be claiming to be God. Because ultimately they'll put Jesus to death. You you don't put to death on a cross someone who's just a good moral example. You don't kill one who's just a spiritual movement starter. But no, they kill him because he's claiming to be God. And so Jesus really kind of corners every person in the world to say we have to wrestle with, is Jesus God or is he not? And if he is, it impacts everything in our lives. If he's not, he has no impact. He's not worthy of our study. And so, friend, we we hope that you would feel comfortable to explore more of who Jesus is. You can join us each Sunday as we walk through the Bible together. If you'd like to speak with someone, we'd love to arrange, if you're open to doing that, someone who could sit and talk with you and answer questions. Or if you'd like to talk with someone today, I'll be at the door following this service. If you came with a friend or family member, I'm certain they would want to tell you more about Jesus as well. Jesus, the innocent and faithful one, was accused. So we see the accusation of guilt. But then second, we see the pain of guilt 
in verse 69 to 75. The scene then shifts outside to the courtyard. We saw a moment ago, verse 58, that one of Jesus' 12 disciples, Peter, had followed the soldiers, the authorities, and Jesus to this place, but then he had followed at a distance. So when Jesus was arrested, all the disciples had scattered. Some had fled to various distances. So, so Peter stays near, not with Jesus, but not too far. We see in verse 69 that Peter was in the courtyard. A servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. And Peter denies it and says, I, I don't know what you mean by that kind of moves to the entrance. And another servant girl saw Peter. Said to him, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, Peter denies and says, I do not know the man. So the pressure is increasing. Peter's denunciations are growing stronger. And after a little while, some of the other bystanders came up to him and they said, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. You talk just like them. Then in verse 74, Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. There's no stronger way he could have said, I don't know Jesus. Right after he says that, immediately we're told, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus just hours before this. Jesus had told Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus said, this very day, Peter, after Peter had boldly said he would die for Jesus, Jesus says, today, before the rooster crows, three times you will deny me. And we see in our passage, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter had previously made big promises to Jesus, publicly before the other disciples. As he heard the rooster crow, was crushed. Previously, this strong, self-sufficient, proud Peter was overwhelmed by his own failure, denying even knowing his teacher, his king. So here we see this poignant picture of brokenness, a broken heart of failure, of guilt. Peter had failed he failed as king. Now, why did Peter fail? Actually, a number of reasons that we could think about connected to this. One, Peter failed because of Satan's efforts. Jesus had warned Peter and the disciples that Satan was seeking to destroy them. So there's a spiritual power at work trying to undermine Peter's faithfulness. He also failed because he refused to heed the warnings of Jesus. Jesus had told them, watch out. Be careful. Temptation is coming. Peter was unwilling to heed that. Instead, he responded with proud boasts. Peter also failed because of his own pride and self-sufficiency. He was more concerned with his own place, his own position, than considering his own weakness. He failed also because of prayerlessness. Jesus had urged him. Watch and pray that you wouldn't fall into temptation. Just hours before this in the garden, Peter, watch with me. Pray with me. He also failed because of physical exhaustion. They've been up for hours at this time, all night long. Their bodies are weak. 
He also failed because he tried to face this temptation alone. In the garden or in the courtyard, he's there alone without others to stand with him. And friends, we should know that these same dangers are real for us as well as followers of Jesus. All the same dangers. Friends, Satan wants to destroy you and your faith. He goes to great lengths to try to undermine Christians, to destroy churches. For Jesus has given us warnings in the Bible of the destructive nature of sin, the reality of temptation. So the question for each of us, do we heed his warnings? When we see cautions in the Bible to flee sin, to fight it, to understand how weak we are, do we believe that? But are you aware of the dangerous pride in your own heart and the self-sufficiency that springs up from that, that makes you very much open to falling in sin? Is your life often marked by a lack of prayer instead of prayerfulness? For Jesus urges us to pray. Temptation is real. God offers help. Pray and ask for God to keep us. But are you physically exhausted? We live in a frantic, busy world. We're all, almost all, always tired. And friends, these bodies impact what we do. Often when our bodies are physically exhausted, we're more prone to fall to spiritual temptation as well. So sometimes the wisest thing for a Christian to do is try to get some rest. Just try to get some sleep. And for now, I also wonder, are you trying to go it alone? So tempting for Christians in America to think, I don't need other Christians, I don't need a church, it's just me and Jesus. Friends, the result is typically devastating. We can't go it alone for long. We won't go it alone. We'll be eventually overcome by temptation, tempted to wander away. Who will help us when we fall? So let me encourage you, if you're a Christian, find a local church. Join that church for the good of the mission of the church, for your good, for your own safety, and that you might help others to be safe as well. Peter was crushed by his devastating failure. All of us have been there at some point, if we're honest. Every one of us have failed. Different situations, differing degrees. We've given in to sin, embraced sin, disregarded God's way. We've made horrific, destructive choices. So raise the question was there any hope for Peter in his failure? Is there any hope for us in our failure and sin? And the good news is there is great hope. We saw earlier in this chapter that as Peter was warning his disciples that they were all going to fall away, he had told them they would all fall away, but he said after he was raised, he would meet them in Galilee. The assurance that he wouldn't give up, to the, give up on them even though they would all scatter, that he would be there to, to restore his scattered disciples, that he would be there to forgive them. John chapter 21, we have this beautiful moving encounter of Jesus in particular with Peter. 
Peter had failed to such an extent. Jesus comes to restore, to bring him back into the mission of Jesus. Jesus had prayed for Peter. Jesus had seen Peter fail. And Jesus would restore and transform Peter. In the book of Acts, which comes just weeks after Jesus' death and resurrection, we see a completely different Peter. This one who, in the shadows of the courtyard, denied even knowing Jesus, would stand publicly in the streets of Jerusalem preaching, even though the authorities tried to force him to stop. He would not stop preaching. Even when jailed, he came back out there to preach again. Peter, the one who in the garden had foolishly swung a sword that took off the high priest's servant's ear, would not, even, not fear the sword. He wouldn't fear death. Eventually, he would be martyred. He would die for the name of Christ. So I wonder, how could that change happen? In just a matter of weeks, deny even knows Jesus in the courtyard to saying, you can kill me, but I'll keep preaching the good news of this risen king. What changed? How was Peter different? Well, first, he'd experienced the life-changing grace and forgiveness of Jesus, his king, who between this and that died and was raised. And from that comes this great salvation. And as a part of that great salvation is we are a new creation. We once were dead, now made alive. Peter had that transformation happening in him. So he knew free and full forgiveness in Christ. And another tremendously important fact is that Jesus tells us that after he ascended to the Father, he would send the Holy Spirit who would come and live in every Christian. So previously, Peter could stand next to Jesus. After Jesus' ascension, no longer could he stand near Jesus, but something better was coming. The Spirit of God in Peter. The Spirit to embolden him and keep him and sustain him. But that change had come. And also... Because of this failure, Peter had finally been humbled. He was broken of his pride, self-sufficiency that we've seen all across this gospel. Peter had tasted the depths of failure. And finally, Peter the rock had been broken. And this brokenness ultimately turned out for his good and for the good of others as he would finally trust in Christ and not primarily in himself. Very importantly, this brokenness was not the end for Peter, but in fact, it would be a doorway, the beginning of more humble, fruitful ministry that God had for him. Friends, that's true for you as well if you're a Christian. Failure, sin, even massive moral failure is not the end for the Christian. Have you tasted the bitter tears of brokenness, regret, disappointment with yourself? But by God's grace, even that can be catalytic for your growth and engagement in the kingdom of Jesus. True brokenness can finally make us truly teachable, it can make us humble, it can make us useful. Our gracious God loves to redeem our failure and our brokenness for the sake of his kingdom. He doesn't work in us in spite of those, but even through those devastating choices. From being encouraged by that today. 
Maybe today you're in the midst of failure and sin now. This morning, this week. But repent today. Turn back to Christ today. So we see the pain of guilt. But then third, we see the despair of guilt. Chapter 27, verses 1 to 10. We see in verse 1 and 2 that the Jewish authorities settled on their verdict that Jesus should be put to death. They bound Jesus, led him away to hand him over to the regional governor, Pilate. Jesus had prophesied that this would happen as well. And then the scene turns to Judas. He'd been one of Jesus' 12 closest friends, his disciples. But he agreed to betray Jesus in exchange for 30 pieces of silver given to him by the Jewish authorities. You see in verse 3 that when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He brought the silver back to the chief priest. He said, verse 4, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. So Judas realizes, at least to a certain extent, what he had done. Now they reply to Judas, what's that to us? See to it yourself, that's your problem. So Judas threw the coins into the temple. The Jewish authorities took the coins, but, but they didn't think it was lawful to put these coins into the treasury because they said it was blood money. It's interesting that evidently they had paid him the 30 to betray, and in their minds that was justifiable to take money from the temple to do that. So some interesting ethical teaching that they were embracing. So they took the money, they bought a field as a place for burying strangers. Matthew draws from the prophets Jeremiah and Zechariah to show how that too had been prophesied by God. And so very sadly, we see that Judas went and hanged himself. A tragic end to his life. Judas was overwhelmed, evidently, with a very real sense of guilt. And this was no false guilt, for the facts are he was guilty. Sadly, Judas apparently turned inward in his guilt. He tried to a certain extent to atone for what he had done by returning the money, but his guilt drove him further inward than it so easily does for us if we don't have another means of relief from our guilt. We end up in a place of destructive self-loathing. It seems that although Judas felt the weight of guilt, he never allowed it to turn him to repentance. Instead of turning back to Jesus, the only one who could free and forgive, sadly, he only turned inward on himself. Jesus alluded to Judas being lost in John 17. Friends, I do want to say that if you ever have thoughts of suicide, related to suicide, we want you to know that you are valuable. You're created in the image of God. You matter to God and to us. And so if you're ever to find yourself in that situation, we would beg you to tell someone. Tell us. Tell another member. Tell the elders. For we would want to try to care for you if you ever find yourself in that situation. Now, by placing these two scenes together of Peter and Judas, Matthew, the writer of this gospel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, intends to cause us to compare these two responses to utter moral failure. Peter was guilty. 
And he had real grief from his own guilt for sin. And this godly grief brought him to repentance. For we would see him return to the other disciples. We would see him gather to meet Jesus. We would see him respond in repentance when he meets Jesus. Judas felt grief from his own guilt of sin. But his grief never moved beyond worldly grief. It sadly led him to death. We see the contrast of these from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. So he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So friends, we as Christians, we don't deny our sin. We don't act like it's insignificant. We don't deny that we fail and fall morally. Friends, in light of that, an appropriate grief that Christians feel we come to grips with what we've done, what we haven't done. The destructive nature of our sin and choices, our rebellion against God. But, but this grief is intended by God not to crush us, not to push us away, not to condemn us, but to bring us to repentance. As we confess our sin to God, trusting in our gracious Savior and what He has done for us on the cross. And He is always faithful to forgive and to renew his people, when we turn back to him. Dear friend, I wonder, are you weighed down by the grief of recent sin? This morning, you feel the weight of that. The pain, the bitterness of your rebellion. For know that if that's where you are today, forgiveness and renewal is available today through Christ. Turn back to Christ today. Do you feel and hear condemnation within for past sin that you've already repented of? Friend, if so, no, that is not from God. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And one of the ways Satan, the evil one, wants to paralyze Christians and keep us from joining in his mission is when we live in condemnation from past sins. But friend, Christ paid for those sins. Don't let those past sins weigh you down. If you've repented and turned from them, they're gone, removed from you. Don't let that weight stop you from joining in the mission of Jesus. Friend, I wonder, have you been on the path of rebellion so long that you barely feel the conviction of sin. Do you hardly even notice the sense of guilt for sin? Have you become dulled to the reality of sin in your life? Friends, that's a significant and dangerous place to be. And if so, I pray that God's word today would be a wake-up call for you to shake you from that dullness to wake up your heart and mind to see sin is serious, it's real, it's destructive, but also to turn you to Christ where forgiveness is full and free, restoration is found. And we want to see today that there is hope for those of us who are unfaithful, not because we become more faithful, but because Christ was perfectly faithful. He is always faithful. He was fully and perfectly faithful to the cross every day of your life and for eternity. He will be faithful to you. 
So because of that, Peter's failure was not the end. And because of that, friends, your failure, your sin, your rebellion, my failure, my sin, my rebellion is not the end. And that's why the story of Peter is included in the text. Because the true story of Christianity is not of good people who have it all together. But it's of failures, transformed, forgiven by the perfect king who has never failed. The story of Christianity is of, of rebels who've been reconciled. Sinners who've been freely and fully forgiven of debtors. The debt has been paid. The dead who've been made alive. Failures redeemed. So friend, our hope today is in our faithful King Jesus, who silently endured, who suffered, and who was mocked. His faithfulness would culminate as he would go to the cross. The sinless Son of God, dying in the place of sinners like us, being raised on the third day to provide this salvation a gift received by faith. And now, for those who have trusted in him, he empowers us by the Holy Spirit who lives within us to make progress in faithfulness. But that's good news, that a year from now, you can make progress, not perfection, but progress, being more like Christ. The sin that has been so habitual, you can make progress over. Areas of failure two years ago, don't have to be areas of failure two years from now. Progress can be made. The Spirit of God, the grace of God, the power of God in us. Mindful always that our faithfulness, whatever faithfulness we have, flows from His perfect faithfulness. So from this hope today and every day in our faithful King.